we are really excited this week. I'm glad you could join us. This is Innovator's Mindset, Episode 5 of the iMOOC. This week, we have a special guest, Brad Gustafson, a principal in Minnesota, doing some really amazing things with the staff. His students are doing absolutely amazing things. Just really fascinating to listen to him. We talk about what school looks like, his new book, Renegade Leadership. But then we talk about digital portfolios, the notion of empowering educators and students, what that means, and how it's so crucial to what we do in innovation and education. And then we take some of your questions. So thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoy this episode. Please take a listen to Brad. He's one of the most forward-thinking yet grounded principals you could ever come across. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, welcome everybody. We are really excited to uh, be here today, uh, Katie Martin. And I know that a lot of you might be actually watching football right now or doing something else, spending time with your family. So if you're doing that, um, that's great. You can watch that after time, whatever time you get with your family. I know it's very precious. Uh, to those people that are with us now, thank you for taking your time out of your day to be here. Uh, really excited about this episode. Uh, we have Katie Martin, as always, joining us, who's going to help moderate the conversation and, and keep kind of keep an eye on some of the things. I am actually uh, here this weekend, so hopefully uh, I'm in a hotel and hopefully our internet doesn't, you know, stonk out. And correct me on this, Brad, uh, but I'm actually with Brad Gustafs, and I probably, I totally screw your name up every time. Uh, I like Brad that. is the principal uh, in uh, Minnesota. And one of the things that I will tell you that there are a, a few principles that I know in the world that I would actually totally say my kid needs to go to that school. And, and Brad is one of those handful of, he does some really amazing stuff. So uh, welcome Brad. And Brad, if you could just kind of give a little um, introduction of who you are, what you do uh, before we get started into questions and asking about stuff, uh, we'd love for you to introduce yourself to the audience. Super. Hey, thanks a lot for that, George. I appreciate it. So I like, uh, you actually sound more Minnesotan than I do. That was really impressive how you said Minnesota and my name even. So let's let's not mess with it. That was good. Um, I'm, I'm Brad. I'm a father of three. I have three elementary age kids. I'm an elementary principal of 752 kids in at Greenwood in Minnesota. And I would say that my passions lie in helping kids have all kids really not just the kids at greenwood but have innovative learning experiences so that so that that type of learning is the norm and not just not just a novelty or something really cool that happens every once in a while so in a very quick nutshell that's me that's awesome and i i see your book behind you um renegade leadership can you tell us a little bit about your book (laughs) <laughs> don't don't make me uh, move too suddenly because that thing is balancing there. So I have to be very still in this chair. <laughs> uh, so that you know, long story. Thank you for asking and and noticing. Uh, the book is really about creating innovative spaces for kids to learn. And, and uh, you know, long story short, the word leadership might be a little bit of a misnomer depending on who you are. If you're a superintendent or a principal and you're thinking that that book is for me, I I hope you're right, but. But also, I think teachers and paraprofessionals and, and parents have a lot of leadership, whether it's informal or formal, and they can help lead the change as long, as long as they're in supportive environments, and even in some cases when they're not. So I think that the book hits and is intended to be a support for everyone who wants to make a difference for kids. And I'll tell you, um, I actually was honored that Brad asked me to write a forward for the book. I don't even, maybe talk turfed it because it was so bad, I have no idea. So. <laughs> um, but uh, I... 
I actually will never write a forward for a book uh, unless I read it. And so I, uh, Brad gave me his book and what, what blew me away is how many examples he gives of the work in the book. And like, I don't know if you want to highlight some of those things, Brad, like, I don't even know, like, to be honest with you, when I ask you, like, could you highlight some of the things I, I would have no idea where you'd start because there's like so many amazing examples, but is there like something that kind of sticks out to you? Some of the work that you're doing that, you know, might actually really resonate with some of the audience right now. Well, I think the alignment between the work that you and Katie are doing really aligns with the work that our team is doing in that, even in the forward, you wrote for Renegade Leadership, why can't schools be leading the way with innovation? Um, innovation, and now I'm putting a few words in your mouth, but innovation shouldn't be something that kids think is innovative in their classrooms, even though it's been in, quote unquote, the real world for five or 10 years. Kids can be inventing and creating and, and um, to some extent, paving and leading the way. So that's, that's uh, in a nutshell, more of a mindset thing than anything else. But I, I like the fact that our team, and this gets into innovators' mindset quite a bit, our team really embraces the notion that this isn't necessarily something um, that you have to plug in. That's not innovation. Uh, it doesn't need batteries or a, a microchip. It's more about connecting heart to mind to student. And when you lead out of that place, um, really great things are going to happen that are student-centered. So that I've heard some of your blogs or read some of your blogs and, and recently listened to a podcast that you did when you talked about um, some of the things you've learned as a principal. And I'm wondering, a lot of the people we've talked to are really, fo we've focused a lot on culture. We focused a lot on really getting and building on the strengths of individuals. But I'm wondering in your school, how you're really helping teachers um, shift their practice. What are some things or lessons you've learned that are really helping people move, um, move forward? Sure. Well, I've learned a ton and a lot of it's been kind of painful because of my own um, blunders, if, if I'm being completely honest. And George knows because he read the book that there, I do openly and vulnerably share some some missteps I've made along the way. But I think ultimately that's helped us move forward um, better. But um, one example is instead of me trying to shift practice, I feel like I'm trying to support, empower, and shine the light on effective practices that are happening in every single room. So instead of me mandating, you know, we are all doing makerspaces or we are all doing genius hour this is going to be a passion time school it's it's supporting resources and trying to give time to the teachers who are trying those things so that they go really well for them so i i guess i consider it kind of a strengths-based approach because every teacher in our school has different strengths and um, it's a really beautiful place because those uh fires are fanned i don't know if that makes sense but you know, I go into classrooms, I'm, I'm sure, George, you see this all the time. I'm sure you do too, Katie. You, you, you see something happen, you leave, and you're like, that is the coolest thing ever. And I want all kids to be able to have that. And does his or her colleague even know that's happening? So one, one of the ways that we try to have our colleagues um, connect and be connected as kind of a family at Greenwood is just by shining the light and opening things up, um, whether it's at PD and having teachers lead that and share their story, or even on... Uh, Using Twitter, for example, we have a couple televisions, one in our office, one in the front hallway, that teachers' tweets are streamed so that if I'm a teacher or, you know, principal making copies, I can glance up at the TV in the office and see what the person in the very next room is doing to make a difference for kids. It's a pretty powerful way to um, turn learning inside out. So. And I think, Brad, when you talk about that, um, one of the things I always talk about in my own talks is uh, a lot of times I'll show student examples and I'll and you watch the audience totally change. And when I show it, I'm, I'd say, here's what I'm doing right now is 
is shining the light, the kids' light onto the world. And I think that when we shine the light in our classrooms, we ultimately learn to shine the light of our kids because it's just amazing the way we actually connect with our students. And one of the things that I um, love that you do, you're welcoming to new teachers when they come in. And this is like, you know, oh my God, I wish more schools would do this. How do, can you tell people well, like when you do the, the welcoming to new staff, the little press conference that you do? Oh, sure. And this is, again, the beauty of just being connected, whether it's having teachers on the same campus talk to one another or having friends in different states or, or countries, as it were. Um, but I know Joe Sanfilippo in Wisconsin, he and I were talking several years ago about a press conference idea that he had done. And so never we tried it out and we did. Never heard of him. <laughs> uh, so we did a we did a mock draft. And um, so as we hired new teachers, we said our first round pick is so-and-so and we had a cool background using green screen of our school logo so it actually did kind of have a uh, I don't know an NBA flair to it and I you know I there's one point in the video where I even take a sip of water kind of like an NBA coach does that was probably a fail and no one maybe even noticed that or maybe it looked awkward to them but just a little things we had some kids shouting questions you know things like that and then trying to switch it up, keep it fresh and relevant to the audience. This year we did a Star Wars theme. So there was the scroll at the beginning and uh, each, each Jedi, you know, each new teacher was introduced along with some of their passions or their, their, their force. So I just, that's it. We use video a, a lot, I would say on, in our school. Um, it's one of those things, and I, you know, I know this is true in, in your book, George, and I talk about it as well, but we don't necessarily have to throw out the, the baby with the bathwater. And sometimes, like you allude to in your book, that can be an excuse to someone who doesn't want to change at all. But what we can do is we can honor current practice and say, how can this be better for kids? Or how can this be more relevant? And sometimes that might in, involve a little bit of technology. And video is a great example of that. So instead of the paper newsletter, we do a lot of communications that actually shine the light on kids, give them the microphone and audience, and, and they tell their story, or, or at least are involved in that process, instead of it just being a, a principal or, or even a teacher. Awesome. So I have one final question in our first um, 10 minutes. There's a lot, a lot of times we talk about spotlighting those teachers and really sharing practices, which is great. And I love the examples you shared. But I know a lot of um, listeners and a lot of people are wondering, what about teachers who are a little bit more reluctant? And what about teachers who aren't really sure about how to make that next step? What are some ways that you have encouraged and supported so that all kids get the benefit of some really powerful learning? All right. Um... So this is probably one of my biggest failures and shortcomings, and I'll t talk briefly about the journey, but I know for the longest time, um, and I, I realized this through a process of feedback and conversation, that I was giving more attention to people who were doing things differently and, and moving the needle in, in some pretty remarkable and cool ways, and my attention had shifted from standard practice that is critical and some of the work that we all know is core for just the relational stuff, the morning meetings, um, things like that, just solid, engaging literacy instruction, for example. And over time, I've been more intentional about not diminishing that work, even if it's by omission. So um, I think probably if you go back and look at my digital footprint over time, you'll see a shift and you'll see how I was learning in that area. So when you ask about um, you know, bringing people along or supporting them, it's easy to say, well, I'll meet them where they're at, or maybe I'll just mandate this. But really, I think it's a one-on-one -on -one endeavor of the heart where you know what they care about, you know what their interests are, you know what they're really proud about, 
and you can just have conversations and learn why they're proud and maybe even ask what their next steps are because they might have it. They just might need a little extra space or time or funding to, to make it happen. So it's a harder answer. I wish it was, I wish it was easier, but really it comes from seeking to understand where each teacher is at. And then I'll, I always couple that with modeling too. I try, I, I, I love learning and um, before I ever ask anyone to do something, I hope that they would tell you, yes, he's, he's doing it. You know, <laughs> there's no doubt about it. Anything he asks us to do, he's doing it. You know, and, and you said, you said that I, you think you wish it was an easier answer. And I think if it were an easier answer, everybody would know how to do it. I mean, the reality is it is a one-on-one -on -one endeavor and it is, you know, each person has to make their next step, but I really appreciate you highlighting the fact that, um, it's easy to highlight innovative practices and really shine the light on that, but so often we don't want to leave behind our foundational aspects of literacy and um, the learning that we know kids need at a foundational level as the basement and then continue from there. So thank you for sharing that for sure. Mm -hmm. And just to, just, to summarize, uh, just to summarize my thoughts when I look at Brad uh, and the work that he does, and I do hold him in very high regard and I've seen him do quite a bit of amazing things at the school and his staff. Um, one of the things that I see is this intersection between being forward thinking and, and grounded in relationships and how that intersection is so crucial that when you look at this, you can, there are so many people that have amazing ideas who cannot make them happen. And I think that if people do not feel valued and you don't build those relationships and, you know, kind of actually like when you're looking at the work that you're doing, Brad, you're, you're always, kind of assessing like what you're doing and, and how you're connecting as opposed to saying like uh those teachers like they won't like you're like saying like how can i help like how can i be in there and i think that's a really important aspect of this um but we're we're done the 10 minute portion we're going to go into the rapid fire questions uh and so the first question i ask and i would re i'm really excited to hear what katie and brad think about this because this is a question we get all the time is how do you when you look at creativity and innovation how do you measure it and can you, and, and what would your thoughts be on that topic? Um, I'll jump in on that. And I would say kind of to start with, I don't know for me if innovation in, it, in and of itself is the goal. Um, so I would say improving student outcomes and innovation is how we do that would be the primary driver. But I do think that what we currently measure if we're looking at narrow test scores <laughs> isn't going to align with the innovative practices we're seeing. So um, something that we talk about a lot is if your vision is about students being creative and thoughtful and critical thinkers and leaders, yet you are measuring some narrow skills, there's a disconnect between what you're saying you want and what you measure. So that's not gonna get us very far. We need to broaden what, what we measure and look at different indicators of success to really see where we're showing growth and where we're seeing progress in those, um, in those aspects that we value and that we want to see in kids and that we know is going to help them be successful okay, in their okay, life. What do, you, what do you mean when you say by, like student outcomes? Because some people hear test scores. Right, and that's exactly what I'm saying. Currently, we, we measure only on test scores. But if we, wanna, if we want kids to be good communicators, are you really looking at, and I know, like digital portfolios, are you looking at different aspects of how they communicate with one another? Are you really seeing growth in their critical thinking? Are they able to create projects that make an impact and show what they're doing um, in different ways beyond a test score? Are they able to have conversations with people? Are they able to go out and find problems and, and create innovative solutions? Those are things that I think people say they want in a vision statement, 
yet we have narrow indicators of success that don't align to those, those desired outcomes. And Brad, what are your thoughts on that? I think we're really good at the, there are two fluencies as I look at it. There's the what fluency and that's content and things that get measured, high stakes testing and people, we, we, we got that for more or less. You know, we need to find ways to make sure every student gets there, but, but, but that's the what fluency. I think the harder, more ambiguous thing are the, the why and the how fluency. So I read your post recently, George, about blogging, for example. That's not necessarily a skill or a, or a how or a why that's emphasized in schools, but that's something where if we know what the what fluency is, there's a way to give kids that opportunity and embed or integrate that, um, that content into that type of fluency. So for, that's just how I simplify it. The other quick thing that I say, and this is my, like the shortest answer that I, um, it's like, what's the word, branded on my, my heart. And, the lens I see, student ownership will help us always be creative and innovative because kids are inherently um, inquisitive and curious, especially when you're working at an elementary school. So if we ask ourselves, like you do in your book, what is best for this learner, we will always cherish and protect and find ways to help them be more creative. When we, when we lose sight of the student ownership lens and what's best for the learner, that's where we can get more into what Katie was talking about and the, and the scale tips in a way that's actually at a detriment to kids. I feel you know your, my book better than I do, Brad. <laughs> hey, I got to tell you a quick, here's a funny story. So I was, I was writing my book and your book came out maybe after my first draft was, I'm not really yeah. sure. I had to purposefully not read that thing and you gave it to me at, uh, uh, where were we? We were at a conference in Michigan together. Yeah, exactly. And you gave it to me and it was like torture not being able to read that thing because, and I even showed you my first full manuscript there. I'm like, I cannot read this because I love George. I love how he gets people thinking, but I need to write a Brad book. So now, yeah, it's, it's fresh. I was able finally to unleash and dive into your book. <laughs> All right. I appreciate that, buddy. Uh, okay. So next, the next uh, focus, and I think it ties into the first one, the notion of measuring innovation. Uh, one of the things that I'm very passionate about and I actually, I'm not only my passion about, I actually see schools, I don't think they're doing this that well. I don't think they're doing to the full capacity is the, the talk of digital portfolios. Digital portfolios are uh, totally taking over. People are like trying to scramble to make software. I think there's a lot of monetization that's happening in schools because it's like, how can I provide the best digital portfolio app? But I don't see it happening in a way that is actually powerful, that is, you know, going beyond school. And I don't see that it's actually much different than a paper portfolio. Like, you know, if we just do it for grade two and it's LBC, there's no, there's no connection. So any thoughts you guys have on digital portfolios? I, I want to share some too, but I would love to hear your thoughts too. Yeah, I'll approach it more from a mindset standpoint and i've heard you say before we ha we have to be able to focus on a few key levers in order to realize meaningful change there are so many things out there for teachers and principals to focus on and some of them are um just distractors but the majority of them are really important things that can make a difference but we can't do them all that's where i see digital portfolios playing into this if we're really going to dedicate some time and say this matters in the long term which would which would require meaningful change we have to help people have some level of coherence and understanding about how those are going to be integrated into the system platform uh et cetera, et cetera. so i think it's really hard there are just a lot of things that compete for that time and space i'll just jump in really quickly on that i think um and i know a lot has been influenced by the work that george has done but i think that if we're not using digital portfolios we're doing a disservice to kids and i see this in a lot of ways 
you see a kid start fourth grade or fifth grade or sixth grade, and at times they start over based on where the teacher thinks they are. Every year it's the teacher getting to know the student, the teacher figuring out, here's where my curriculum starts and ends. And if we don't empower students to, to keep track of their own progress and their own process of learning, we miss out on a lot. What if we started the year and a kid could build from where they were the previous year instead of starting over and they could you know, continue their journey and share with the teacher, here's what I did last year. You know, when I was a seventh grade teacher, I relied on what my students told me they could do. And I finally went back and saw some of their own writing. And I was like, you guys have totally fooled me. You were way ahead of where I thought you were. And if they had that portfolio, they could grow from where they are instead of going backwards. So Katie, how do we get there? You mentioned the seventh grade teaching and you could do that and you could be the change. And I, I think that's a powerful way to actually bring in uh, current best practice. But then what happens in, in eighth grade and how do, you ha how do you have that work on students' behalves systemically, even if it's a single school or district? Yeah, Katie, yeah. Do you I want to jump in on yep. this. Um, the thing that I think with, is really crucial with digital portfolios is that there is a continuity in it. It's not that this teacher loves this software, this teacher loves this software, and then you have kids with like basically just small efforts in all these different spaces, not based on the kid, but based on the teacher. And so I think that we've we've created we've looked at platforms like how is this continuous? And if I could go back in time. One of the things that I would do, and, you know, I think that there has to be a balance of, you know, having teachers go and, you know, search and find their own professional learning. But the other element of this, too, we have to, like, focus on what, do, what are the, the needs of our children as they walk out. And so <clears throat> I would go back and say, hey, every grade four, six, eight, 10, 12 teacher, we're going to work on digital portfolios this year. And we're going to give you all the support you need. We're going to talk about it, but we're also use that as a, as a leverage to get them to talk about curriculum and to talk about understanding what assessment looks like, but doing it through the, uh, <clears throat> but doing it through the, the viewpoint of a portfolio. Like what will look at, what will it look like? What can you put into this? How will it actually show learning? How could it actually be a resource the kid creates? And then in the following year, you work with all five, seven, nine, 11 teachers. And within the two years, you would actually have all those teachers working for, you know, working forward and doing this, which would also change the way you hire moving forward. Because if a teacher says, I wouldn't do that, they're probably not for your space, right? And the big beneficiary of kind of rolling it out the way is that a kid never loses that momentum. A kid never loses this. And I actually, I've written quite a bit about this. Um, and like, you know, questions like who owns the learning is crucial. Like how is this helping a kid's digital footprint when every kid you work with will be actually, you know, will be Googled for like a job or university, like to hang out with other kids, right? Um, what, what brings people to the portfolio? Is this something I, ha I have to give to you in some manner or do I actually develop an audience? Like what's the purpose of portfolio if no one actually sees it? Um, and so, how, but that, that connection. And so I think this is really, I could do, you know, 20 hours on this because this is something I'm extremely passionate about. And I think it actually goes into the, the, the first question about how do you measure innovation, right? And when we look for numbers, but I'm looking for a lot of stories and I'm looking for examples. And, and I think that's a, a really crucial element of this. Um, so <clears throat> the, I think Brad's question, and I, sorry for cutting you off, Katie. Um, Good. The the uh, the the barriers, right? I think this is one of the barriers. Is like, how do we get to this point? Like, so what do you guys see as some of the barriers to innovation and in education, and how do we actually, you know, get around them? Like, what's what's holding us back? 
I think one of the things for me that I am super passionate about is a lot of people externally determining what needs to happen in the classroom. So I see a lot of times I talk to people within organizations from the superintendent to the central office to principal to teacher. And everyone's saying kind of the same thing, but the teacher ends up feeling like they have programs to implement. They have all these things they have to do to meet up with some mandates. So, and it's, it's not really helping them get to where they want to, to really reach that vision. So I feel really strongly that a barrier is sometimes it's communication. It's just communicating what we want and then allowing teachers to do what they need to do and they know what's right for their kids and kind of taking some of those regulations and external demands away from teachers to let them do in their classroom and to try and figure out what's right for the kids in their class. Um, so I know you, there's lots of other examples from both of your points of view, but for me, it's really about communication of what it is we want teachers to be able to do in the classroom to get our students to that desired goal, and then really allowing them the time and space to do what's right for kids. George, I could talk about that question for probably 20 hours. <laughs> so this could be a really long show. <laughs> you know, I think one of the, one of many barriers is frivolous innovation and by well-intentioned people, probably myself sometimes. So people then get the, can you see this? You know, they might think that uh, this is what we mean when we say innovation and really um, a drone does not, is not good or bad. A drone is, is a quadcopter. You know, this could be just as innovative as a roll of duct tape just as innovative as a, a drone. So when I think really great teachers um, see the drones being used in less than meaningful ways, that doesn't pass a sniff test for them. And they might say, you know what, I'm not interested. I'm gonna keep trying to be use best practice with how I know how to do it. And I don't think that's a bad reaction. I just, it, it takes a, an important conversation about pedagogy to help us move forward. That's a, a quick hit on that. I think the other thing is really the status quo. And that feels really, uh, undefinable, but I've seen it, I've seen it at play and we all have. Here's a quick example. So this year our district started, um, we added specials to kindergarten, which is a fancy way of saying now our kindergartners get specialist teachers in Fayette, music, art, technology, et cetera, et cetera. It's actually a pretty cool thing. Um, but with that, principals and schools had the autonomy to, we knew kindergarten would get a half hour a day of these specials. We had the autonomy to figure out what that was going to be. Well, at, at Greenwood, our our schedule kind of drove part of that conversation and we uh it landed where kids did get art music fiad once a week and they actually get technology twice a week and that's the status quo that's not that's not necessarily good or bad either because sometimes change isn't good right it's not meaningful but what we did was we saw this as an opportunity again from george's book change is an opportunity to do something awesome so Guess what we did? What we did was worked with an amazing new technology teacher. So one of those two technology classes a week, we kept the same as standard district technology curriculum. The other tech that the kids get a week is kinder coding. So by the time the kids get out of our school and out of their kindergarten year, they will have had a deep, rich experience in coding, not as an after-school program that only some kids get, but every single kindergartner, every single week will be practicing coding. That doesn't take any money to do. We have, we have the teacher and you know what? The first several weeks of school, I think we're six weeks in now. I don't think the, kid, the kindergartners in that coding class have touched a, a device. They're like coding each other with paper arrows and they're, they're developing that linear thinking and that problem solving. Now pretty soon, yes, the teacher is gonna introduce Bebot, Spheros and some other things. But the, per, the point is to any naysayers out there, 
you do not need money. You just need to think a little bit differently and you have to think a little bit long-term. So I'm, I'm super jacked by what our teacher is doing and just cut me off, George. Cut me off. No, actually, you know, I'm going to actually ask you one question related on this. So we'll, we'll go a little bit over it and we're going to go one more question after this. But Brad, here's something I see in schools and I see some of leadership is the perceived barriers that don't actually exist. So sometimes you want something as a principal, teacher believes they're not even allowed to do that. And I don't know if you've ever seen that before, right? Like, um, I think it was Chris Lehman talked about, you know, like no teacher ever gets in trouble for kids sitting at desks, not talking and being totally like compliant, right? And so how do you actually, how in a way do you actually continuously share those expectations with your teachers so that it's not like, well, oh, my, like I hear so many times I'm talking to the principal and the teacher says, Oh, my principal won't let me do that. I'm like, I just talked to them. They like, they're all over this stuff. Right. So how do you, how do you create? So there's no disconnect there. Yeah. I think it, there's two ways that we approach this. So modeling is one that you just hear me say over and over and over. So if a, a team sees their principal take risks all the time, that really could blow up in his face. I think it makes them feel safer. And we have those conversations too. Um, the, the second way, I lost my train of thought. Katie, save me. Help me. So, <laughs> I got you. I'm going hey, to jump in on that. My George, where were you on that one? No, okay. I, so Brad, I'm going to jump in because I, that same thing. I do hear people say that all the time. Like my principal says I can't do that. But one thing I'll say is no principal has ever brought me to a classroom where kids are, because kids are following, or the teacher's following the curriculum and every kid is sitting in the rows. They're bringing me to classrooms because they want to share great things that are happening and they want to show how kids are creating new things and collaborating but we need to have conversations about that like you said yes. modeling we need to talk about why that's why this is working and we not need to say like oh that teacher is being innovative but we need to bring people into those classrooms and talk about what's working and to your point earlier talk about the pedagogy talk about the learning that's happening not how the chromebooks are used at every table or how it's blended learning or technology time, what kids are learning as a result, because all teachers got into this because they want to help kids learn and do better. And so when you can show that powerful learning is happening because of access and because of different ways of connecting, that's what gets people excited and wanting to do things differently. Not a lot of teachers are like, great, now I get to use Google Docs or great, now I get to try to learn how to use a Chromebook. They're excited because kids can do things differently. Yep, and actually, you're you're amazing because I was conversation was the second um, thing that can really um, cut through some of the barriers. So, George, in you your chapter in the book on thinking inside the, or innovating inside the box, yeah. we we actually had a conversation. We were presenting together on a panel. I think it might have been McCall too. Um, and, and I uh, talked about the, the line item budget that I had for innovation. Basically, in my principal budget, I didn't need a grant. I didn't need to go ask for donations. We have some protected money. Here's what I've learned over time, and, and a little bit of a failure, but we did, um, I, I, you know, I'm smart enough to iterate or realize the error of my ways. I wasn't having conversations about that. So my line item budget may have only benefited the people who were comfortable enough to come to me or had time or, or knew that that was there. What about the, the half, I'm just making up numbers here, but what about half the staff who didn't even know I had that? So now um, this last year, this was a huge hit. What, something we did was we called it a one sentence grant. We let people know that we have some resources available to them. Um, email me what you need. I don't care if it's the best practice. I don't care if it's innovative. I don't care if it's a stool or a fan for your room so you can stay cooler because not all our rooms have air conditioning yet. 
Uh, and they did. And it was so cool to see the things that people were asking for. Just um, and, and it doesn't have to be a huge ticket item, but that generated lots of conversations. And it was so easy for teachers because everyone can make, if it's a priority to them, uh, 30 seconds to email the principal and say, I would love this. And that it just changed it to make it more transparent and accessible. So that, that, that's that uh, conversational element. Principals and school leaders can have ideas, but if they're not meeting teachers where they're at or connecting, then um, th there's going to be a, kind of a misperception that certain things aren't allowed. You know, um, just on the side here, I know that you struggled when you said, here are the two things, you couldn't remember the second one. <laughs> yes. If, if you, when, I don't know if you watched the podcast with Caleb Brashad, he'll like, here are the 84 things. <laughs> and he'll remember every one. Really? Like, oh my God, this guy, like, you know, and then 72. And he'll like, I'm like, how do you remember all this stuff? Like, it's just amazing. Like, if I said, here's the one thing, I don't even think I could remember that. That is so, hilarious. So, so I'm like sitting there, I'm like, how, like, I'm like, I'm like counting them down. I'm like writing down the numbers. <laughs> oh my God, this guy, he is just pretty funny to watch. So I did uh, see that. And I got it just on a side note. I saw the podcast and he had a ton of energy and I don't, usually I'm the one who has quite a bit of energy and is clapping and stuff like that. But when I saw that, I'm like, oh my gosh, I got nothing. So, so here I go. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, the last question we're talking about, and then we're going to take some questions in uh, just so you know, people that are actually watching on Twitter, um, if you want, tweet your questions. We're going to try to capture some of yours right now. If you want to have a question for Brad um, or myself or Katie, uh, please tweet it out. But the last question I'm going to ask you is, I talk a lot about the notion of empowerment. This is a big element of the book, and I know a lot more people talk about this, and I've been inspired by so many other people talking about that notion of how do you actually move from simply engagement. It's not like you, it's one or the other but you go to a higher level. How do you actually empower your staff, your students? Um, what, do you, what does that mean to you? What does it look like? Any thoughts from either uh, Katie or Brad here on this? I'll just quickly, I know Brad mentioned this earlier, but I think it starts with finding out what people's goals are. Um, sometimes, a lot of times, um, teachers just think I'm good. I have to go through and, do, and implement somebody else's curriculum or rules. And just asking teachers, what do, what do you see? What do you see as something that you could change in your classroom um, is so empowering and creating, again, like I said, the time and space for them to do that, but really having those conversations about what they could do differently and, and then coming back to it, not just once, but coming back to it and pushing them, giving them more resources and connecting them with other people, I think is a really um, powerful way to empower teachers in the classroom. Yeah, when I hear you ask that, George, one of the things that makes me wonder is what's the purpose of empowerment? And I guess I'm thinking about teachers in this particular case, but um, what's the best thing that can happen if they're empowered? Why should we empower them? And I, I'm sure that, and then of course, what does that look like and how do we make it happen? But for me, um, the impact on kids, because when teachers are empowered, I tend to believe that they will empower kids. I think how, how a team learns in a staff meeting in some way, shape or form will translate to instruction, um, if not now, uh, eventually. Um, so that's kind of the short answer. When I have conversations with teachers, um, part of it is me empowering them by learning from them instead of me having to figure out what they like or are interested in and then trying to cater resources or blog posts or, or get them that stuff or information that perceived, I think we all have it as educators, this innate um, belief that we have to be an expert in, in everything or at least our content area. But if we can be a learner in that thing, we'll, we'll be much, our kids will be much better served. So, you know, long story short, if I know what a teacher is passionate about, 
um, and they're able to actually share resources with me and I'm asking and this, you know, we have teachers who are really into project-based learning, which is incredible. I love that they're giving me articles and I'm reading them. I mean, that to me is empowerment and that they're leading comfortable now leading staff meetings or breakout sessions or just things, areas of need for our staff. I think that takes a lot of courage and it's definitely a team, team effort here because um, for a teacher to get up and have the courage to present to a faculty or to a portion of faculty, you have to have people around you that you that, that believe in you and that you trust. So, mm -hmm. and I'll just add one thought to this. And I know this is a, maybe some people don't like that I say this, but if you truly are only shooting for engagement, why wouldn't we make some awesome YouTube videos and then just have kids watch that? They could be totally engaged. Uh, but how do they actually create that content, right? I think that's a, I think that was like one of the, the best things about Khan Academy is it kind of put teachers on notice is like, you know, if you can learn all this stuff that you're doing, if you can just watch a video, maybe we're not really doing our job. Maybe we need to go beyond this, right? And what's the depth of knowledge when a kid watches a video, is interested in it, as opposed to creating a video has to go so in depth with their knowledge, but they, they feel ownership over it. And I think empowerment and ownership they, they go hand in hand is that, do I feel a part of this? And I think Brad, kind of one of the things that I hear you saying is that when teachers are doing this, um, and I saw this really great quote from Jimmy Cassis and I, oh my God, it was like so good. And it talked about like, do you want people to buy in or do they see it's an investment in the school? And I think that what you're trying to do is, you know, uh, get people to see that they, they're, they're crucial to the success, success of the school through their actions. I was just talking to someone in Voxer today, literally about this topic of engagement, because we, we've been trained, and even the teacher evaluation models that are out there, student engagement appears time and time again, and you know, people are, you know, quote unquote, judged or coached to increase engagement, but is that the end goal? Because you, know, you were talking about YouTube videos, but when I was a second grade teacher, I'm laughing when I say this, but I created some really engaging worksheets and I spent hours and hours and hours after school creating these things. I like drawing, so a lot of them had um, art and some cutting components. In fact, I even named them phonics activity sheets, not a worksheet, because I had a, a sense that that wasn't as engaging as it could be. These were activity sheets and that's engaging. But George, when you talk about kids being content creators, to me, that's really the, 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 the pinnacle. And then having the, the right environment for what they're creating, an audience that's authentic to them and not just us. So here's a super quick example. And we could all, um, it doesn't matter what the technology or tool is, but for me, right now I'm learning how to use and create v virtual reality. So we bought a 360 fly camera and I did a virtual tour of my office and I am um, hitting barrier after barrier on uploading this thing and it's, it's not going easy, but I am, I'm not gonna give up on this because ultimately I don't just want our kids having Google come to our school and using the cardboard and, and seeing, I want them creating it and leading the way in the world or at least having that as an option for them. And that's why I feel like I need to figure this stuff out so that they can be creating and not just consuming in that area. So, we're done the rapid fire part and now we're going to turn to the Twitter for some questions and we've got some questions in a Google form as well. The first question that we'll pull is from Annette Lang at Ms. A. Lang. Uh, how do you encourage, how do you encourage peer observations teacher to teacher? So I know Katie, you do a lot of work in professional learning if you want to jump in on this one. I do, and Annette, I got your message today, and I will send you some resources, by the way. Um, 
she was already asking about peer observations. Meta. That was very meta. <laughs> so I do, I, I think that um, encourage is the right word because a lot of times I run into a lot of resistance when we say, we're going to go and observe. Um, teachers are like, no, we're not ready. Principals will often tell me, yeah, my teachers just aren't ready. And this is um, a comfort zone where we're really comfortable just saying, we're not there yet. Um, but yet I find if we don't push, we never get there. So one of the things that I will do is take people into classrooms, set it up, but set it the very clear expectation that it is not about the teacher in the classroom. The peer observation is not to give the, the teacher feedback that you're going to see. It's about the learner and it's about me who is observing, going in and understanding what it is that I could do better as a teacher. And I find that having this protocol set in place and some clear um, norms about how we talk about the classroom and what is shared and being very transparent about the process sets people at ease when they start to see like, oh, you're really not going in and critiquing and walking outside and saying, oh, this teacher did this, this, and this. You're celebrating, you're talking about what you're seeing, and you're talking about what you're learning as an individual. So I think that has to be a foundational element. Um, and it really is about shifting that culture to learning and to understanding how we could improve rather than really putting people on the defensive about what they're not doing or what they could do better. Guys, Brad, any thoughts? Any thoughts? <laughs> Yeah, well, the, you know, the one thing that occurs to me is in how peer learning occurs is going to be different for each person. So the barriers that I might be thinking and experiencing might be different than what Katie is. So um, just trying to be attuned with that. One thing that I try to offer as much as possible is just covering a class or even a grade level, if that allows teachers to get together and observe one another. And it doesn't happen often, but I have done that. But that's not going to be as I'm listening to Katie, that's probably my number one strategy because we do have a pretty robust peer coaching model in, in our um, district where people have that opportunity. But I, I want to support it in case people are looking for more or different. But I was thinking, boy, I need some more tools in this area. So keep going, Katie. Well, I do think that it's something we peer coaching and instructional coaching, I think, is really important. But what I found as both a teacher and a coach, that a lot of times we say, I'll wait here. When you're ready, come, come to me and I'll help you. But the people who need help and the people who need to move, and this is to another question about how you move from pockets to a culture, it needs to be an expectation. If we're going to do what's best for kids, we, deserve, we need to be in classrooms. We need to be understanding what's happening across our schools. And so I do push pretty hard in this area to um, kind of say we are going to go in and you are going to have people come and see what's happening because I think that um, our kids deserve to have um, – to have teachers who, who understand what's happening beyond their classroom. And I also think we need to get out of our schools and see what's happening because we get so used to what is our norm. Um, and if you're not reaching beyond your classroom walls, you don't even know what you're missing out on. Right. And in my mind, this isn't necessarily a practice that we're talking about. I think it's more of a cultural thing where what we're yeah. talking about is learning from one another really is where this fits in. So just um, little things that that create spaces for that to happen, like be, having a staff connect using digital means and sharing the learning on uh, Twitter, for, for example, and, and blogging is another great example. That's a great way to be vulnerable and share what you're learning, what your questions are, and then have a colleague either come in and lend some extra experience or actually see that that's happening to get an idea where that spreads. That's a great way to incubate innovation and, and best practice. Right. I have one final comment. I know George is jumping, but the last thing is I use, what you mentioned, Brad, is the expectation. 
when we come in and do it as an afterthought, like, oh, I'm going to come in and observe, that doesn't feel as authentic. But when we're saying, look, we're going to try something out, we're going to plan together, like you mentioned, that culture of peer learning, we're going to do something together. And then you're going to have time to practice it and, and see what works. And then I might come in in a week or two and see how it's going. But it's because we have a shared goal, we have a common understanding, and we have this desire to help each other improve. So I think the more we can set up systems to really support one another and create those goals, it feels more natural. It doesn't feel awkward. It feels like, oh, we agreed to this. So we're all going to move forward in this way. I think it was last year I had two teachers ask if their formal observation could be um, team teaching and highly collaborative where they plan everything on the front end, do the pre-conference together, do the lesson, and actually connect. they connected their primary age kids via Google Hangout for the math lesson. And it, it was the most seamless use of technology I've ever seen. It was almost in the background, but yet the power, the unifying power and how kids were interested in connecting outside their classroom was so powerful. But I remember when they first approached me, one of my initial thoughts was, am I going to get dinged or in trouble for this when someone finds out Gustafson is letting people do this for observation? So I was, I wanted to basically, long story short, I said, absolutely, we can do that. And when you have your post-conference with me, let's do that individual so that the feedback can be really, really personalized. And I think it was a really um, incredible experience, but that's just a little thing where for them, what they needed to learn from one another was, was that, and it could be very different for somebody else. And did you get in trouble? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> one, one, I think, I think uh, really crucial and very short points is that when we have a culture where it's not just teachers accountable to the principal, but teachers accountable to one another and their students, that changes everything. And I think that's a really important thing to remember is that we're not just trying to serve our boss, we're trying to serve others in that organization as well. Um, the next one, and this is a little contentious question, it's kind of interesting. Rachel Bath from Australia, uh, at R-A-C-H Bath, how do you empower and connect with staff who have no trust in each other, let alone the leadership? So that's a very tough question. Before I let you get to this one, Jennifer Castle Todd uh, DM me said, you have snot coming out of your nose. So if that is true, and Katie Martin and Brad did not mention it to me, you are both in trouble after this podcast. So thank you, Jennifer Castle Todd. That was not a question. That was a statement, <laughs> but I do appreciate it. So going back to the original question, how do you empower and connect with staff who have no trust in each other, let alone the leadership? Any thoughts on that? Uh, my, my initial thought is ownership is the responsibility of everyone. And, and school leader, the buck stops with the school leader. They have to own when things are not going well. And then when things are going well, praise the amazing teachers who are doing the work every day. I mean, that's really the reality of it. But um, I would hope that in some way, shape, or form for the kids, a teacher or a principal who is noticing and experiencing things aren't as good as they should be, could somehow have the courage in a professional way with integrity to start that conversation, even if it's with a trusted colleague, and then even with it's a principal perhaps that you just don't trust. Kids are the business, and if we could at least start the conversation there, I think things can happen. And I'm sure it's a really hard position to be in, but I would just hope, um, because you know what, quite honestly, let's just be real, there are probably people who, who don't trust me, and that pains me, and I try, I try to not have that be the case, but if it is, um, 
is, if there's a way for us to have that conversation and move forward or agree on some things for the, the betterment of kids, I really think we owe it to ourselves to do that. Katie, and just thoughts? to build on, yeah, I mean, I think in order to really empower people, there has to be that trust and there has to be that vulnerability. Um, and I think we've talked a lot about throughout the last couple of weeks and just in general that you can't really change somebody else. But I think if you're noticing it, it, has, it can start with the individual. It can start with the individual having small conversations, opening up and being vulnerable and sharing um, some struggles and, and really, and I think getting back to how it's impacting kids. Because if there's a staff that doesn't trust one another, I can only imagine how it's impacting the kids and how they treat children and how the whole culture is. So first thing, try to make that, um, that step as the individual and start having conversations with the leader and reaching out about how you can create that kind of culture because it's, it's critical love, to moving forward. Sorry, Kitty. I love when teachers approach me with, um, they might mention things that they think could be done better or ideas, but they'll, have, they'll offer solutions. Like it, we're thinking this could work, this could address it, this. Trust is such a hard thing and, and it can hurt because we all pour our life and heart and soul into this work. So when, we're, when things aren't where we want them to be, it can be really personal, whether, again, whether it's a teacher or superintendent. So if it were me here in this situation, I would hope that um, someone maybe could come to me and say, um, and, and teachers are so smart, they, they will know what could help even incrementally. Maybe it's having norms in meetings or in observations uh, because they were maybe burned before where they, who knows what, they felt someone was talking about them, I don't know. Um, but if they could say, um, offer a solution, it's not laced with, uh, I don't know, judgment or intended to be a harsh criticism. I can't help but think good things could happen. I don't know many people. In fact, I don't honestly, I don't think I know anyone in Minnesota who gets up in the morning and wants to have uh, anyone be miserable. And, I, and I'm not making this up. I'm friends with a lot of principals in the state and my colleagues in the district. We love teachers and we care about them and we don't always agree with every single thing that happens. But that dialogue and that trust is so important to us, and we're not perfect too. Um, so let's just talk about it. The, the thing that I'm really being cognizant of lately when I'm doing workshops and working with groups of teachers is that I'll, I'll share a lot of ideas, but I'll say to them, challenge me. Tell me where I'm wrong. Don't do it. Don't do it after the session. It's useless to everybody. And I think that we have to be more comfortable putting people in these situations and like saying, calling them out and saying like, this is, this is unacceptable to me. If you disagree with me, if you do not say it here, it's does no one any good if you do this after. And I think this is really important, but just remember, and I think this is a really crucial component. Trust goes both ways in the sense that teachers definitely want to be trusted. And, and I'll say this advocating for you, Brad, in your position, Brad wants to be trusted that he's doing the right thing as well. And so it's really easy to say, well, our principals and trust us, but you know, oh, my principal is making all these bad decisions. Well, they're not really, they, they have other, you know, things that, you know, we have to like connect with and understand. And, you know, Brad has a boss and, and I, and like, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about Brad specifically, but I'm talking to anyone in that pr principal position is that they have to be trusted as well that in their, in their interests. And I think it's really important that we understand that in a hierarchy, if you really want to move things forward quickly, trust is, is something that goes both ways. It's not just, oh, I want to be trusted, but I don't trust my principal and the decisions they're making. So I think that's a really crucial component. So the, la the last one I'm going to take um is actually and this is katie and i've been talking about this uh, and uh melissa lasher asks 
M-M-L-A-S-H-U-R-E from Syracuse, Indiana, USA. I had no idea there was a Syracuse in Indiana. What suggestions do you have in getting plugged in and staying plugged in once this book study is over? So how do we continue to build momentum with the group? How do we actually do this? And you can actually see, like, people get really busy and, you know, things come up. And you can kind of see some people are, like, you know, not participating as much as they once were, uh, even though we're trying to give them ownership over what they're doing. And I would love any thoughts that you have on how do we keep this, like, um, you know, snowball, as, you know, as Dave Burgess talks about, you know, getting bigger and bigger as we continue on as opposed to dissipating by the end. Was that to me? It could be to either one of you. I was like, oh my God, the screen froze. <laughs> um, Look at me. I've really, I've been thinking about this a lot and, and I, I don't know exactly the answer. And I think I'll turn it back to a lot of the participants. Like what is going to be most meaningful for them? Um, I do know continuing to keep the spaces. I hope that the Facebook group and the hashtags don't die in, you know, in the next two weeks, that they continue to be places where people share but I also would love to kind of check in in two months and what are some things that you're doing? What have you learned as a result? Because I think that it's really powerful to really start something, but you also have to be held accountable or hold yourself accountable to try something and come back and reflect. And so I would love to create some opportunities and check in that we could say, here's something I started, here's something that I've done differently, but I'm going to check in and share my results in X amount of time so that people can understand and learn from, you know, what's been working or what hasn't. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, just to come full circle, it reminds me of that question, what's best for this learner? Is George laughing? I haven't even answered yet. <laughs> we, both, we both just stood there stunned and then we oh, sorry, sorry. And then wait and then spoke. Go I ahead, was, buddy. I was just thinking what's best for this learner and, and some people might gravitate towards continuing via Voxer in a smaller group. Some might love and be on fire for a blog or even a, a YouTube channel um, or just a, a hashtag in general. But I think probably, and even with, with my book, I mean, these are things that, that we think about. Um, creating spaces and helping people know that they're empowered to actually create the spaces as well and then finding ways to stay together. And I, I tend to believe that hashtags do a pretty nice job of that if everyone's aware of them and using them. And I, I loved that idea. Like what's going what's gonna to happen in a couple months, right? And kind of checking in on people. Um, there has been considerable interest about running this again. A lot of people couldn't participate fully, uh, but we, I think when Katie and I are talking about this, because I know Katie, uh, if she has the time, we want definitely want her kind of helping lead this charge, is how do we actually get some of the other participants to take part in round one to actually kind of, you know, lead the way as well and so that we can start expanding this and, and making it bigger. But I would love to see, you know, the, that follow-up, like a little iMOOC reunion tour and seeing what happens. Anyways, um, we, we want to thank you for your time, for being here. Um, I really want to encourage you to get Brad's book. It is awesome. If you're reading mine, it is a beautiful companion. There's so much that there's a connect between the two. And I know he tells some very powerful stories. Uh, you, if you don't have any ideas after it, you didn't read it. So it's, it's really, really good, um, in the work that he's doing and, and Brad, seriously, congratulations. I have the utmost respect for you because, um, you, 
like you are always up for a challenge too. Brad and I have gotten huge arguments before. Um, <laughs> but we, I always, as I have with pretty much anybody I've ever <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, but congratulations on the book, man. All the best to you and your staff. And, and just, you got any you. final words, Brad? No, thank you for, for all you do. And I'll, just to the principals and teachers out there, um, we have uh, several copies of your book available at our school. And it's one of those, it is a difference maker. So um, the respect is mutual. Thanks, my friend. Kitty, any final words? It's been a pleasure to hear a little bit more about you, Brad, and your experience. And I can see why George said that he would want his baby in your school, you are a very thoughtful and um, passionate leader, and I um, look forward to the book. And I also um, just want to say to the rest of the iMoot community, we have another um, week to go, and I'm really excited about your thoughts and continuing to hear what you're learning and what you're going to do as a result now that we have gone through the book and the book study. So keep blogging, keep sharing, and I look forward to your ideas. And I just want to thank everyone for being here today. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And to the people listening on the podcast or on the YouTube channel, thank you for your time. Thank you for your dedication. Keep doing things to inspire others to continuously be amazing. Uh, thanks for your time. We look forward to hearing from you all soon. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Tell me, mirror, what is wrong? Can it be my daylight clothes or is it just my daylight song? What I do 